Thank you for joining us for the PebCAC Podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It's week 17 of 2021. I'm Chris Louie, and this week I am thankful we got an extra month to file our taxes here in the U.S. As a reminder, the tax filing deadline for individuals is May 17th, and this is not financial advice. With me, I have Brian Deach. What's up, everyone? Duke Silver here, still rocking that face mullet, and thank God they moved the uh, the tax deadline to May 17th because I'm getting my taxes done on May 12th. And to our listeners, specifically the few of you guys that are giving me direct feedback, I love it. Keep it up. Thank you so much. With us is Glenn Medina rocking a collared shirt yet again. And how many times have you worn a collared shirt since you moved into management? Hey, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Happy to be back for the podcast number five, not sporting a mullet and only wearing a collared shirt because one of us needs to wear clothes on this podcast. Very true, Glenn. <laughs> very true. Combined, we have decades of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. We've got some awesome stories for you this week, so sit back, relax, and keep being awesome. For our first story, the FBI coins a new deep fake attack vector named business identity compromise. Traditionally, the FBI warned against what was called business email compromise, where somebody impersonates somebody important in the company, maybe the CEO or maybe the CFO, and they spoof or create a fake email to someone in the company in the accounting department and say, I I urgently need millions of dollars transferred to this account. You can't tell anybody because it's, it's secret, but do it now. That was what was called business email compromise, where attackers would impersonate important people and steal money that way. But the FBI is now warning that attackers are stealing entire identities because the best defense against business email compromise was pick up the phone, call the CEO and say, do you actually want me to do this? And that would have stopped a ton of fraud right there if that step was taken. Now, attackers have stepped it up and improved their tactics. Now they're using the power of cloud computing, AI, machine learning, all this power that they have at their fingertips. And they're actually beginning to synthesize the voices of people like the CEO of the company. So when that controller calls and the attacker wants them to transfer the money, they'll actually play a recording that sounds exactly like the CEO and says, yes, this is me, send the money, no more questions, and then hangs up the phone. Sounds like Mission Impossible in real life, right? Have you guys had a chance to see any of like those videos out on the internet where it's like some dude, he looks like Tom Cruise or Will Smith, and he's saying like obscene things, and you're like, I can't believe... He would actually say something like that, but through the power of like you know, you know the computing and stuff, uh, it looks like him and it sounds like him. Have you guys had a chance to see that yet? I know there's a TikTok account that's dedicated to things like that, but I haven't actually watched it. But I hear they're pretty convincing. And when this whole pandemic started, I do remember a story about somebody creating like a fake Steve Jobs account, and they would just zoom bomb as. Steve Jobs, it would look like him, it would sound like him, and it freaked a lot of people out. Yeah, this is just crazy. Unbelievable that 
the, the way technology has moved and we're getting to this point. I was talking to a couple of folks yesterday and they were just amazed at how easy it was for someone that doesn't have a lot of skill to do a deep fake or create a deep fake. I don't know. It's it, This is getting out of hand now. Yeah, I think Adobe was the first one that came out and they have that, that software that they had certain amount of your speech recorded that they can they can replay you saying absolutely anything. And that that's like terrifying on itself. But now the fact that I have seen like comedians that can do impressions, right? Like on the late show or something like that. And they're they're you're watching it and the, the face is literally changing from Steve Harvey to Tom Cruise to to whomever on the fly as this guy is doing the impersonations is is it's insane. And uh, we started thinking about like the entire effect of that. Like how like if you did like a really good deep fake and you put it out there in Twitter and you just shared it like, hey, you know, I saw, uh, you know, the president, you know, Joe Biden was at my house today and he had this to say how you can influence people with it. And it doesn't even have to be like malicious intent at all. It could be benign. But it's like, hey, you know, you know, go out there and, and buy some more stock in, in Bitcoin, like how that would change the world. I think. One thing, I was happy to actually be proven wrong here because one of my predictions for 2020 was going to be the role of deep fakes and how it influenced the election cycle. We had seen some some level of deep fakes being used to make some politicians uh, look bad. I thought it would be way worse, but we had plenty of other things to worry about in the election of uh, 2020, the presidential election here in the U.S., and I'm actually pretty happy that, that that wasn't the case. But like you said, Brian, Adobe started this and said, we need an hour of your speech and then we can make you say anything we want. Well, with the power of AI and better algorithms and competition in the market, I've seen some advertisements that says, we only need five minutes of somebody's voice and then we can make them say anything you want. So it's getting to that point where you really have to be careful of not only do I have to verify that the voice is correct, I have to ask this person a question only they would know. If the CEO calls me and says, transfer me a bunch of money, I said, okay, I'll, I'll be happy to do that, but where did we eat lunch last week? And if they can't answer that, then you know, you've got a problem. I'm, I'm notorious for uh, like forgetting conversations that ever actually happened, but one of the ways that I can use this to improve my personal life would be to like have like a fake dialogue of like a conversation between me and my wife that never happened where I got permission to drink 12 beers or to go out and buy a drone. <laughs> like I could see like how this could be used for good as, as well as evil. I'd like to see if I can get someone to do deep fake and just attend my many, many meetings a day and just have them do that instead of uh, me having to be there in person or in the call. Yeah, there you go. That's a good use. Now you're of, thinking <laughs> of AI. And one thing I, I also thought of was, uh, if you guys are fans of the Fast and the Furious franchise, um, and the listeners might know this, but but Paul Walker, one of the main characters of the franchise, uh, passed away in, in real life a number of years ago, and they wanted to write his character out nicely in, in the script, so they needed audio of him, they needed video of him, and they were actually able to get enough audio and video together to give him an, an actual role in a, in a movie for the franchise that he, he wasn't even alive. And they were able to synthesize all that and put him into the movie and gave him quite a nice, nice uh, write out of the script. Definitely. Uh, I watched every one of those movies. I had no idea. I thought that was like, like B footage floating around that these were used. So that's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, the cool story behind that actually is they got his brother to do the the body part of the acting, and then they deep faked his face on on his wow. brother's body. As a follow up to our FBI story last week, uh, let's go a little bit deeper on web shells. Last week, we covered a story where the FBI received permission to remove web shells off of compromised Microsoft Exchange servers. This was done for organizations where the FBI felt the organizations themselves were ill-equipped to expel the attackers. So by removing those web shells, it made it harder for the attackers to get back into the server that they previously compromised. But as Brian noted last week, they did not patch the exchange bug so attackers could come back in and reinfect the device. Let's take another look at web shells. Right on. So when we talk about web shells, like the, the, the way that it was phrased in the article was, oh, yeah, they can get access to your emails and you know, potentially steal uh, you, you know, account credentials for different things. Like think about it, like all of our email accounts can get us into our Apple ID, et cetera, et cetera, Salesforce, you name it. Uh, so I can see how that can make sense. But then I thought, well, what kind of web shell is it, right? And, and probably the most popular one that's actually out there right now is called Emotet. Now, Emotet is not just like this thing that just kind of gives you a reverse shell in, it is a beast, like it, it has the ability to phone home. It is polymorphic in nature, which means at any given point in time, like let's say I have infected thousands of exchange servers or WordPress servers or something like that. And a new signature came out from AV that says, hey, this is how I know to define that this is Emotet and we want to block it. I just go out to my command and control and just be like, you know, click a button, change the executable name, and along with that, I'm going to give it a whole new fingerprint entirely. So it's a great evasion technique. So I thought, okay, this is pretty cool. But then it, it does a lot more than that. So it can, it can try to spread laterally, right? It will try to brute force the, like Wi-Fi networks. It will try to brute force into to, to SMB um, network shares and whatnot just to see if it can get in there. And in some cases, it could be using like a, a password dictionary. But in some cases, what it will do is it will take a recent breach or even an older breach and try to do something called credential stuffing. So if we can pick on, I don't know, the Ashley Madison breach from a number of years ago, the use case there would be, and I actually had labbed this up in my environment, went out to Payspin and I, I downloaded a subset of the usernames and passwords thinking, would they ever be able to replay those those credentials against something else. I went out to my favorite burrito company and I was looking for something that would be easy to do this type of attack against. Now, the crazy part about this is like they didn't have like any rate limiting or any type of protection because literally it was like a loyalty program. Like, thank you for buying burritos, you get a free burrito. Now, the wildest part about credential stuffing in that particular scenario is the breach had come out 18 months beforehand and I was reusing these account lists against this burrito website. This burrito website was brand new. It had been like three months old and out of the, I think like 100,000 accounts that I downloaded and was running against there, within a matter of minutes I had successful logins. Now this should tell you a couple of things. Like one, like people that cheat on their spouse are idiots, right? But, not, but now they're even dumber than we think because not only did they know that like their marriage ended, 
right? And all their, their information has been out there on the internet. They thought it was a great idea to still keep using that same email address and password across other websites. Like it's just insane to me. So that's, that's one thing that you can do with like credential stuffing. And then the part that I love about Emotet is that it is, it's completely supported by some type of community out there that's constantly evolving it and adding new features to it. And I love it because I think it's clever. I hate it like if it was in my environment, be, be uh, you know, scary. But the purpose of it as well is to download additional malware. So when you think of uh, malware like TrickBot or Ryu that are out there, how, is, how do you actually get that on these systems? And it's not necessarily users downloading it. It's they have malware downloading other malware to do these different things. And if you haven't seen or heard of TrickBot, this is, this is a scary one. This is something that we would call it like it's a, a piece of malware that runs in the browser and it sits there and records your keystrokes. And then it sends it off into some third-party place where the attacker can now log in. So the idea would be Emotet was on a server, somehow spread it over to Chris Louie's computer. Chris Louie's computer now has the TrickBot running on there. And it's recording every single keystroke, including the one he used to go to about the Bank of America and to authenticate. Now the user doesn't even have to even be on that machine to, to harvest those credentials. He takes it, or she takes it, and then logs into Bank of America, and then all the chaos begins to start to go. And then to kind of dovetail into our, our first topic, there's this, this idea called thread hijacking. Now, we had talked earlier about, you know, you, you've uh, compromised exchange and you can get in there and, and, and access people's emails and send people emails. But the new way of doing this is that the attacker is going to go through there and read stuff. And then when they find that there could be like an, an interesting point to respond, they're going to respond on behalf of, uh, of, of the person's email box. So let's say that there was a conversation going on between Chris Louie and Glenn Medina. I, and I'm the bad guy, I'm going to come through there and I'm like, well, my goal is to infect Glenn's machine. How would I do this? I, I would write something very similar in line in thread saying, hey, Glenn, uh, you know, check this thing out. Boom, link. Glenn goes over there and clicks on it. Too little, too late. His machine is now compromised. And then the last part uh, about Emotet that I thought was interesting. Historically, it would communicate over DNS. So anytime I talk to security people day in, day out, they're like, what do you know about DNS security? How can you stop DNS tunneling, right? And that was probably the easiest path out, but it has evolved. Emotet is no longer communicating purely over port 53. They're now actually going out on 443. But here's the kicker. When it's going out on 443, it's not actually encrypted. It's actually 100% in clear text. And the uh, one more last thing that you can say is that if I have Glenn's or, or Chris's email, what I can do now is if I want to spread this out to everyone in his email box, I can actually send the Emotet um, uh, a phishing attack. Now, the way that this works is I, I'm going to send over an encrypted zip file. That encrypted zip file is going to pass by any type of inline proxy, any type of email gateway because it's password protected. Like You can't get in there. But in the body of it, I'm going to say, hey, Chris, can you open up this file? And here's the password pretty clever way of the uh, the bad guys getting in but when they do that 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 file is a macro enabled 
um, like Microsoft Word document that's going to pull down Emotet and infect the machine. And that's how they're kind of getting in there. So when we talk about web shells and what's going on there, it's not a couple thousand. It's, it's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of botnets that are out there all kind of hone in on this. So when you, when you hear web shell, be scared out of your mind. If you run a AV scan against your, your computer and you find Emotet, guess what? You need to scan for TrickBot. You need to scan for Ryu. I mean, you name it, they're all out there. So this is the uh, thing that uh, keeps you up at night just from our last segment. <laughs> if it doesn't, it sure will now for me. Absolutely. I, I look at this and I'm just like, wow, like uh, the bad stuff has evolved. It's not just some sort of you know dumb program that is that's kind of phoning back home. And when you look at this, now we understand a little bit why the FBI is so interested in confiscating this malware, right? They're trying to figure out, okay, this, so number one, a lot of attackers, they use the default password to, to, for the administrative side of the malware. So that's how they kind of get in. And then two, they want to see where these things are calling out to. So if this had infected, like, I don't know, a banking vertical or a, um, some type of voting mechanism, right? This would be a great thing to have in the back of the pocket so they can do their forensics and their investigations to figure out exactly, you know, who is in this? Like, is this like some 16 year old boy? Is this out there spreading out malware, or is this like a stateside attack from like you know the big the usual suspects, Russia, whatnot, and try to hone in on it? You know, a little bit of a cat and game mouse. There's Trickbot, there's Emotet, there's all these botnets that spawn web shells or cre- create some type of remote access tool. And on the topic of law enforcement disrupting cybercrime, like we we talked about last week. Uh, we saw U.S. Cyber Command temporarily disrupt the TrickBot botnet last year, right before the U.S. presidential elections, where the thought was they could use it to interfere in the U.S. elections by launching DDoS attacks on Election Day, spreading ransomware to state and local governments, and just plunging the U.S. into general chaos. But in true whack-a-mole fashion, uh, TrickBot, they were only down temporarily, and then they came back with a vengeance, and they got mad that they got taken down. So they started infecting more people with ransomware. They jacked up the ransom. They said, well, we lost money while we were down. We're going to make it up by attacking these 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 other people. Uh, so like you said, Brian, just a, a general cat and mouse game with these these types of uh, infections. It, it, it's funny. Like if we tie this back into the first topic with the deep fakes, like we are visual people by nature. And if, if there was... This going on in conjunction with the deep fake that was like, hey, uh, thank you for voting, right? We, we, we calculated your vote and, and Glenn is sharing it out to his Facebook network and, it, and it's whoever I deem to believe, right? And it's social proof that X, Y, or Z is going on. I might, I might just take that as like verbatim and that things are done or good or going a certain way. It's, it's a scary time to be alive. Definitely. All right, on to our next topic. Without going into too much detail, I may have a life event coming up which requires a transfer of money, and that amount of money is money I would prefer not to lose. And that got me thinking of the best way. How do you securely send money to a, what I'll call a semi-known party, like an, an escrow company or a business partner? You know, back in, when I worked at Iron Key, I sold a product which was a secure browsing environment. You're only allowed to go to specific websites on this allow list. And it even came with an encrypted keyboard driver to foil 
keyloggers in your machine or in your browser. I've read best baking practices online and a lot of them recommend use a Linux Live CD on a computer which is only used for banking purposes. So no Facebook, no YouTube, nothing except for, for banking. So you buy this computer, you boot up the CD, nothing is persistent, any changes that you make they're erased because a CD by nature is a read-only medium. What are your guys' tips on how to securely bank online? Bank check. It's the only way to do it. <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've done, you know, I've bought and sold several homes, and for some reason, checks are the only thing that seems to be the method that I've had. But again, as of late, I've seen wire transfers go as well, right? So I, I'm I'm not as concerned. I mean, when you say big, Chris, I mean, I'm not thinking like maybe millions of dollars like you do, but I may think less than that. Uh, I, I said the ones that I've had, I mean, the banks are covered for up to $100,000 per account anyway. So for me, I said if it happens, it happens. But, you know, take some caution. Um, we've been, I mean, I've been alive for the last almost 50 years now and I, I haven't been hacked that bad. Not to say that anyone please start um, attacking me. Please don't, because um, I don't have a lot anyway for you to take. Um, but the idea is, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, bank check, um, online transfers equaling less than $100,000 for me is, is not an issue. It's not a, not a big thing. Um, but it's not something I get overly crazy about. Sounds like you're doing a large file transfer or uh, money transfer to probably pay for your taxes. Is that what I'm if we go back to your intro? <laughs> no comment there. So yeah. Glenn, I, I I'm with you, man. Like, so I don't think I've ever done like an actual wire transfer in my entire life. I don't think that I ever would. I look at it. I'm like, there's like primitive security on there. There's like no security, right? That's, that's terrifying. Other than I believe if you're doing it online, your bank may prompt you. If you have MFA turned on, like, are you sure you wanted to send money over there? Um, and on that note, right, I, for all of my online banking, right, I always have MFA turned on because I, I just believe that that's the right way to do it, even though it's, you know, FDI insured, FDIC yeah. insured, excuse me. Um, but the, the times where I have to write a big check or if I had a transfer, it, it, I'm going to write it, right? I, I'm going to yeah. go to the bank. I'm going to get a cashier's check and I want to see who wants to take my money. Yeah. I did, you know, like I said, I, if I go look and I, and the, the couple of bank, banks that I, I, I'm with, I think the most I can transfer, you know, bank to bank is about $5,000. And I think that's a, that's a hard limit on maybe banks in general, but the two banks that I bank with that, I know that's a hard limit. And if it's anything greater than that, I have to go to the bank and I have to tell them, Hey, I want you to wire transfer this. Um, and I let the bank, I let them do bank to bank on that and I'm pretty much third party and I get a receipt immediately, um, which is kind of interesting. Chris, like I said, this is interesting. So I, I want to hear what, what you're thinking here along these lines. I, I, I guess I, I look at it as how would I attack this process? So when you said paper check, I think of things like check washing, like when, when that was still a thing where you can erase the ink off a check put it for whatever amount you have in. You can forge somebody's signature. There's there's that. And there's uh, Even if you physically go into a bank and tell them, I want to transfer money to this account number as the destination. Well, earlier we talked about business email compromise. And one of the ways attackers um, do business email compromise is they'll hack an escrow company and they won't make their presence known. 
But when they know a large closing is coming up, they'll forge an email that says, okay, you know, we're, we're ready to receive your money. Uh, the bank account we gave you earlier, uh, we closed that account. Uh, this is our new account number, uh, so send the money there. Uh, there's, you can still have a legitimate bank transfer that way, but it's to the wrong account. And that, that's actually one of the big, big reasons of why business email compromises is such a big problem is because you can have all these security controls in place. You can have multi-factor authentication. You can have the two-person rule. But if you get the account number wrong, well, you know, there are defenses against that. But all those security controls that we just mentioned, those are completely invalid other than picking up the phone, calling the person on a trusted number and say, repeat the account number to me. And for business to work at the speed that it has to, that just doesn't scale. I can't pick up the, the, the phone every time I need to pay an invoice or something. So there's, there's got to be something there that, that can help facilitate that, but also facilitate business, but also keep, keep people secure. That exact scenario happened. Uh, I wanted to say who that is. We'll say a friend of mine and a majority of their office 365 employees were using their typical like email address and the password of like password one, two, three, something ridiculously easy. And what was going on is that, uh, they didn't have to infect the user's machine, breach the network at all. They just thought, hey, I'm going to try logging in. Oh, I can log in. The attacker got access to emails. And then from there, it was time to spoof, baby, right? Like, hey, uh, we move a lot of uh, product with you guys. And you guys cut us a check for you know $35,000 or wire transfer to this number. You know, the controller gets it and looks at it. It's like, yeah, well, that's, that, that looks legit to me. Processes it over there or, or sends the, the, the wire transfer. And then they find out that it was transferred to the wrong account. There's no recourse. And then I won't pick on the bank in question, but they're just like, oh, um, we only care about transfers of over $50,000 or more. So until this happens again, like this isn't really a thing. So these these attackers, they're they're flying right below the radar, just enough to, to, to make it hurt. And uh, yeah, that was an, an interesting conversation, right? Of like, no more shared passwords, guys. And that was, and that was a a customer, not even a customer. It was like a friend's business that he worked at, hundred fifty million dollars a year in in revenue. I mean, not not terribly large, but you, you take thirty five grand from me a couple times, I'm gonna be pissed. Yeah, I, again, I go back to I must not have duffel bags of money like Chris or you do, Brian. So I, I just <laughs> consider myself broke. <laughs> Duffel bags and ammunition. There you go. Not, not cash. <laughs> it could be worth more than cash sometimes. <laughs> or plywood, right? That's there another big one right now. Yeah. Okay. Now for our final segment, it's going to be a rotating segment every week. This week, we'll be discussing an interesting quiz I found online, which attempts to determine where you grew up based on regional slang. For example, that sugary, fizzy drink that comes in a can, I call that soda. Someone from the Midwest might call it pop, and in other regions of the country, the term Coke, short for the Coca-Cola company, is actually used to describe all soda in general. I distinctly remember one time when all the SEs, we all got together in a hotel for training, and one of our SEs from the Boston area asked me for directions to the elevators. And I told him the elevators were just past the drinking fountains, and he replied, the what? And I said, the drinking fountains, and I made a motion of drinking water from a drinking fountain he said, oh, you mean a bubbler. And you should have seen the puzzled look on my face. Like, I just, I've never heard of that, that term before. Uh, 
it's just like we have our own local dialects and we're we're all speaking English, but we just have different words to describe the same things. Now, I took the quiz online, and we'll, we'll link the quiz below in the description. Um, it was pretty accurate. It said I grew up in a town about 40 minutes away from where I actually grew up. So I know you guys took the quiz as well. How accurate were your results? Mine was about an hour away um, and pretty close. The, what was interesting was some of the things that they asked you, like, freeway, highway, causeway, you know, just things. And probably the one that stuck out with me the most was the, what do you call a bug that rolls up? And it was, to me, it's, I've always called it a roly poly and not a pillow bug. So again, the, those are pretty cool things. And I'm looking at it going, this is pretty crazy, but I can look at it from a standpoint as well as if, if I were to answer some of those questions differently based off some of the places that I've lived and Mind you, I've lived many places in the last 30 years. Oh, I mean, between Texas, North Carolina, Germany, Europe in general, and then back to California. Um, I could see and, and hear some of those words. But again, probably the ones that it's interesting is that it resonated back to where I grew up. So, yeah. Dude, my, my wife and I, her name's Corinne, we were talking last night about roly-polies. Like, we remember seeing those all the time as kids, but as an adult, I don't even know if they exist anymore. Do you guys know? Is that even a thing? Or do they go extinct? Well, they don't have those in Arizona because it's just too hot. <laughs> False. They have them in the high country, baby. Really? Okay. At least they did back in the day, yeah. Yeah, we still have them here. <laughs> yeah, they're still a thing. Yeah, so my, my test put me like in the area of Reno, Modesto, and Fresno, which is like an hour and a half away by plane, but not necessarily uh, via vehicle. Uh, I grew up in a, in a small mining town uh, by the name of Globe, Arizona, most notably known for either mining or methamphetamines, uh, neither of which do I know anything about. Uh, I was lucky to escape that, that death grip, and uh, I would say that it was probably maybe a mix of just different people that, although at the same time, like, you know, a small town of like 3,500 people, uh, it was, you know, predominantly uh, white and Hispanic, uh, Native American population on the outskirts. But I remember like, uh, like a culture shock thing, like going to the, to the Valley, like as an adult, like when I was 18 and seeing like my first African American person in my entire life outside of television. So I know that seems like probably crazy for you guys that have kind of lived all over the place, but that was my reality uh, from three to 18 for sure. Yeah. And I think I, I was in Texas one time, Brian, and I ended up with a coworker who never moved out of the city that he lived in small city um, known for the strawberry festivals had never been anywhere outside of Texas, let alone his County. Right. Um, and then the first time we went on a trip together, he got on a plane and was totally excited about the whole plane trip. So that's another extreme like, wow, <laughs> it was an interesting moment when you realize people come from diverse backgrounds and you really quickly realize that some people don't get really far from where they grew up and, and where they were raised. Yeah. One of, one of the questions I thought were, was pretty interesting on, on the quiz is, you know, what do you call a traffic jam caused by drivers slowing down to look at an accident? And for me, I always call them rubberneckers. And that was the only thing I've ever heard all my life. But there's probably 10 different options here, like looky-loo, curiosity delay, gawk block. It's like, wow, these, these That's things my favorite. exist in 
That's what I call it now. This this sober clear gawk block. <laughs> it describes it well, but I I had just never heard this this thing called called any of these other words. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That that while we all speak English, we all call different things, or we call call the same thing using different terms. Yeah, but where would you find the word gawk block being used in the u.s where would you think that is chris i mean i'm sitting here going where is where is that is that an eastern thing is that a minnesota thing no it's got to be like a southern thing because i think that they're a little bit more creative with their wording at least that's the the vibe that i got after taking this like yeah some really crazy analogies and gawk block is probably my, my favorite one I've heard looky loo in North Carolina, so yeah. yeah, so I don't know. You're right. Maybe, maybe it is. Funny enough, my mind went to Minnesota when I heard golf block. So you and I might have been on the same thread on that one, but yeah, we'll have to we'll have to research that one. Well, we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week, and this week Brian's up. Right on. All right, dad joke of the week. Here we go. What does the runner in the last place of a race drink? Ketchup. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> True dad joke there. Good one. All right, to wrap things up, the FBI warns about deep fakes and a new term called business identity compromise. The Emotet botnet is a bad thing, but law enforcement's finally cracking down on them. Tips on transferring money safely. And the hosts talk about how slang can tell you where a person grew up. That's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the the description. Just so you know, your coffee tastes 20% better just by listening to our podcast. If you know anyone else who would like their coffee to taste 20% better, please share this podcast with them. The best way to find us is to search for the PebCAC podcast on your favorite podcasting app, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. We'll see you all next week, and as always, have a nice day. Bye, y'all. See you next week. Miss your smell.